Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Threat Talk. I'm your host, Bob Hansman, and I have with me today Gary Brewer and Chris Sills, who've been involved in delivering some unique professional services all around the world, including a service that can take down internet domains that might pose a risk to an organization's employees, their customers, or even the public and customers at large. Now, this is an aspect of cybersecurity that the industry really hasn't talked a lot about, uh, which means there's a lot of misconceptions that we hope to clear up with the assistance of uh, Gary and Chris. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Yep, I've been looking forward to it. Now, um, the general concept of a takedown of a domain is probably not totally new to everybody. I mean, we read articles in the F, you know, the FBI just took down a particular cybercrime ring um, or a uh, malicious uh, website. But I've found in my own personal conversations, even at trade shows like Black Hat, that a lot of people have some misconceptions and they're not really sure of what's really involved. Um, I mean, it's a much more complex thing. And, you know, as I learned from my early discussions with the two of you, and so uh, people don't even understand why they might need it. So um, let's start, Chris, uh, we have a wide range of listeners. So for those who are less familiar with the concept, could you start off with like the cliff note summary of what a takedown service involves? Absolutely. Uh, so a takedown service is a provider who helps validate, investigate, and report various instances of fraud activity to ISPs. So they can quickly address a real issue for their clients or address a violation to their terms of service. Uh, the fraud comes in many forms. The most common are phishing or spear phishing related. Uh, for instance, if I'm looking to steal money from bank accounts, I would create a fish targeting a bank. Uh, emails uh, are for sale. You can target based on geolocation. Uh, with some technical skill, you can create a clone of a bank's website and just spam it out to people, see who you catch. Uh, takedown service has two goals. Uh, the first goal is being respectful to the ISP they are reporting to. Um, ISPs have various preferences for active reporters. It's important to not spam them. Uh, the second goal is to report and validate the removal of all threats as quickly as possible to eliminate the exposure, which can come in many forms for a client. A lot of people only see this from the lens of a provider-client, uh, but the client may also want to do things like protect their partners, uh, protect their employees, uh, which may include threats targeting another seemingly unrelated company. Um, you're only as safe as your most vulnerable partner or employee, so it's important to educate everyone you can uh, on the threats that they face and provide for them a means to validate any potential threat quickly before they interact with it. Um, so, you know, I'd, I'd like to get into a few use cases. You listed quite a few. A lot of people, uh, I think that they're, the first assumption that I hear from them is, oh, I'm with company ABC, so when there's a uh, a fake uh, ABD company that's trying to look kind of like me, that's something I want to want to take down. But um, there's others. You mentioned, um, you know, maybe a less known company that's part of my supply chain or something like that. What are, can you give me a, a use case, uh, either Gary or Chris, of, uh, of where, you know, what kind of people uh, or what kind of problems are people coming to you to help them resolve? Sure. Uh, so we had a client once uh, many years ago who provided the partner with a subdomain off the primary domain. This is a casual thing to do in, in most business relationships. Uh, but what happened to them was that uh, their clients started to email them about fraud on their own website. Uh, the client didn't really understand, uh, but they sent those claims uh, for us to review anyways. We were able to determine that their partner's website was compromised uh, somehow, 
and that uh, anyone attempting to visit their partner portal was being redirected to a very similar looking phishing website. Uh, we quickly advised our client that they should reduce the TTL on, that, uh, on, on their DNS records and then temporarily send all traffic uh, to the partner portal into what we refer to as a DNS sinkhole. Uh, while their partner resolved the issue with their compromise. And then we, and then we mitigated the, the fraud landing page used to target our client's customers. Uh, each of us had our part in the process, if you will. Um, our client knew uh, to then immediately wake up their IT team and get them to update DNS. Uh, the partner was able to focus on cleaning up their compromised server, and we were able to remove the phishing, phishing page to prevent others from falling victim to it in some other way. Um, that was one of the best attacks I've seen. And uh, looking back, I believe the report started coming into us at about 2 a.m. during the customer's uh, off hours. Uh, we had a full understanding of what happened uh, with the threat being disrupted by our client's DNS updates and then ultimately re resolved by the ISP in just a few short hours. Now, you were you were talking about a number of validation stages. Uh, you mentioned that also in your your kind of cliff note summary. Um, and I think that's important because about every three or four years, there's this hype that goes through the, the security industry about, you know, offensive security that when somebody attacks us, we'll immediately go back after them. But sometimes it's somebody like you, you had in your case there, a legitimate partner was given a, a legitimate resource and they were compromised. It wasn't them. Um, but the takedown, you, you did it in a measured way to make sure you took down what needed to and didn't actually impact the business, right? I mean, you're, that's part of the reason for the validation is make sure you're taking down just what needs to be done or yes. um, yes. the checks. Make, yep, just to make sure we're reporting uh, the specifics of the fraud and not trying to overlap with any actual parts of the real business that the company may still be doing. So without a validation, there's, uh, you know, there's a big risk there, I, I would take it. Uh, yes, there's an extreme risk for false positives uh, and uh, the largest setback being just reputation of the company, uh, should they get that wrong. Well, yeah, because, uh, I mean, you're not just uh, risking maybe impacting your own company, but maybe other businesses as well. Um, in my example there, I was talking about what if you're the big company and somebody else is your business partner, but it could be that you're the business partner and a mistake on your part could actually impact a big company, kind of like, I mean, we can go back, what, a decade to when uh, Target was compromised because of a hack through an HVAC vendor, you know, fairly small business compared to theirs. Um, now, uh, there's a number of, of differences um, uh, that I want to get into about um, reputation and fair use doctrines um, and, and copyright material. Uh, how how does that you know all of those issues come into play because you're talking about taking down things that could impact a business um what uh, what role does that play in uh, deciding what to take down and what not to it's just a, the investigation of, of what the the content is actually doing so fair use doctrines they exist um that we we know that not every use of copyrighted material is nefarious uh, there are a number of factors which may cut the difference between a trademark violation and uh, essentially damaging your own consumers or your reputation. Uh, you know, for the major factors, I believe, are um, a use that transforms the original work in some way. Uh, that's more likely to be fair use. Uh, Nonprofit use. Um, a shorter excerpt of a longer uh, source, like a book or a movie. 
Um, and then a use that cannot act as a replacement for the original work uh, also is something that, that has to be taken into consideration. So you see a lot of people, you know, they hand draw photos of a trademark character. They'll post that online. Other people will download it, maybe use that as like a computer background or something. Uh, and, and so the company who's looking at that goes, hey, could this be a trademark violation? Um, well, no, it's not uh, because they're not making any money off of it. Um, they're not presenting it as some form of replacement. And it, it really can't replace uh, the true art from the artist, right? It's just uh, something that one fan did. Uh, you know, everybody who's using it is having a good time. People enjoy that background. So they just decided to use that as a, a simple thing. So this kind of takedown service, it's not just about, you know, somebody's attacking you and phishing. It's, uh, there's a lot of different use cases for this. Yes, uh, tra mostly trademark and uh, other nefarious activities like phishing and malware-related, uh, advanced fee fraud. Now, I would think, you know, again, most people would think that in the trademark kind of thing, well, they're going to get the, the lawyers involved, um, but that can take a long time. Um, how far can this go without getting lawyers or do you have to have lawyers involved in order to do that validation and take those things down? Um, I'm, I'm thinking timeframes here because whenever, whenever I've been in a business situation, we've had to sue somebody because they're using our name or brand in another country and all that. It can be months to resolve that kind of thing. Um, in your experience, you know, when you're blending it with a takedown service, how long does this type of thing take to resolve? They can take some, some time. Trademark violations do take longer than uh, criminal activity. Uh, so we kind of break things down into two piles. Um, there's uh, criminal and then there's, uh, I'm sorry, I'm drawing a mind blank, uh, civil. Yeah, kind of more business legal stuff. Is there, I don't know, Gary, is there a term for this? <laughs> yes, it's, it's the, as Chris was sort of delineating the difference between criminal activity, malicious activity, versus trademark violations and something that you would find in a civil setting. Um, most of what we deal with is criminal, ah. is malicious name servers, command and control bots, phishing sites, parasites, spear phishing, um, you know, stolen content, stolen credentials, personal identification information, credit card numbers. When you move out of the civil realm into the criminal realm, the, the response time is exceptionally faster. As you said, as you said, once the lawyers get involved, the wheels slow down tremendously. <laughs> so, Chris, I want to to wrap up this this introductory summary kind of section we're talking about here. Um, I wanted to talk about you know what's involved then in a takedown service. It's a lot more than I mean. You've mentioned a lot of different things, particularly when we start talking lawyers. It's going to be a lot more than just having uh, calling the ISP saying, "Hey, uh, trust us." Um, you know, take this uh, website down. What are all the, the steps that you go through for your service? Well, it's most importantly uh, reviewing the content um, and then establishing ownership of the content. Um, you know, when a company comes to me and says, I have something that is nefariously attacking me, what I want to do is I want to make sure that one, they don't own that piece of uh, uh, software or the, the they aren't, uh, enlisting services uh, on, on the side from some other department. Uh, too often do we come across, uh, you know, companies are large. Uh, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Um, sometimes we'll discover that um, what 
what the security or the IT teams believe is nefarious is actually just um, the marketing team establishing a new relationship with somebody and trying to enhance or build upon their current website or do something like that. Sounds like a shadow IT that, you know, they're doing for marketing, but IT doesn't understand it and jumps to the malicious conclusion. Yeah, the, 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 I would say the, 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 the best and the easiest reaction is to err on the side of caution and protect yourselves. Yeah, those darn paranoid IT people, you know, <laughs> always getting in the way of a good business opportunity. Um, now, if somebody is interested in a takedown service, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of them do it themselves. Some of them might go to a service. What's the marketplace? What are their options for doing this? And what are some of the pros and cons? Um, Gary, you want to take this one? Sure. Uh, there's a variety of options that, and services available. Uh, what most companies need to focus on is speed, accuracy, and effort. Uh, I mean, the sweet spot for anybody engaged in the domain takedown business is to excel in each of these without sacrificing any of them. I mean, speed without accuracy is dangerous and accuracy without speed diminishes the overall value. Uh, I mean, mitigations is a reactive service. I mean, something must exist to be mitigated. So what we're concerned with is the primary cost. And when it comes to mitigations, the primary cost is how much effort am I willing to expend and put into this? because my level of effort is directly related to my cost. To limit the costs, the only two options you have are placing an arbitrary limit on how much effort you're willing to spend, um, you know, or what I can do to form a lot of valuable abuse-related relationships where I custom tailor each report going out and apply some sort of creative persistence to that. Uh, also, automation. Ah, well, and I was going to say one thing that uh, you, you guys talked to me about early on uh, as we planned for this, uh, this podcast, I wanted to, uh, to talk about the, the monitoring thing because, you know, I, you know, the bad guys, they get on a hosting site and you take it down and they'll pop up somewhere else. Um, how do you deal with this whack-a-mole situation? Uh, if you've responded, you found the problem, you solved it, um, do you just wait for the customer to call you back or what happens? Now, for, for Chris and I, and, and everybody's operating procedures are slightly different, but for the business that, info, that Chris and I are working in, we provide 30 days worth of monitoring for free. So if a domain is reported to us and if we validate that it is indeed malicious, it usually takes us 24 hours or less to remove that domain and take it down working directly with the hosting provider and other agencies if necessary. And at the tail end of that, we monitor for that domain to resurface. And if it resurfaces over the course of 30 days, we just take it down again for the cost of the original mitigation. Uh, other businesses probably treat that slightly different, but that's what Chris and I do because, as you said, Bob, this is fairly common. It's persistent. If you take a domain down in a particular location, there's a good chance that it will rise again, rise from the dead. So Chris and I basically monitor that domain for an additional 30 days and take it down for the original cost. So that's uh, that's part of your SLA is that uh, is. Uh, I noticed you didn't commit to 24 hours. You said it's typically 24 hours, which is probably good in a service like this. I imagine as you get closer to uh, certain countries, uh, it's probably a little harder to get cooperation there. That is exactly the case. Uh, you know, when you're dealing with uh, hosting providers or service providers inside the continental United States, the reaction time is very quick. 
But as you get closer to the borders of Russia and China and other places, there's just a reluctance to work with us. So we don't really put an SLA on the international efforts. But again, and I mentioned this earlier, when you're dealing with criminal activity and criminal content and malicious content, everyone pretty much abides by the same rules. It's when you start to get into content removal and things of that nature where people can take subjective opinions on what is this, what is this content, how damaging is it, there becomes a, a, a larger degree of how much time it may take. Now, I kind of interjected that while you were about to go down the automation uh, line of discussion, and so I don't want to miss that. So uh, automation kicks in at a certain point, and what aspects of the service uh, are you able to automate? A lot of the harvesting data, the scripting information, doing who is and digs and trace routes and things of that nature, this can be automated. But one thing that does make our offering different than most is there are human eyeballs on every ticket submission we receive. There is human intelligence that goes into the validation and the monitoring of everything we do. We do not rely upon automation. We do not rely upon AI to make final decisions humans make the final judgment in everything we do. Using the automation for assistance is wonderful. There are some organizations out there in the takedown business who their entire business model relies solely on automation and there is no human interaction. And as we'll get to later on in the discussion, you cannot build a relationship with a service provider or a regulatory body or a law enforcement agency with AI. <laughs> At some point, yeah. human interaction is required. Well, and that was one of the things about this area that I really liked was that, um, or I, <laughs> I liked, I got intrigued about is that uh, I always like those areas of security where, uh, as you said, accuracy is key. If you do it wrong, the impact can be almost worse than if you let a threat through. Um, you know, and, and, you know, I've been in this security thing forever. And I remember where, uh, companies actually had their entire, uh, networks go down, certain services crashed, and it was because of a bug in the security solution. And, um, there was actually a wonderful review, um, back around 1998, 99, where one company, uh, was interviewed talking about just their endpoint antivirus. And they, they said, we are actually considering removing it from all of our systems because they'd had more downtime in the previous year from the security software making mistakes and false positives than from actual attacks. Um, uh, they ended up not doing it. And they said, because we do realize that if we did have even one breach that was successful, the impact would be almost astronomical. But they, they, uh, they said, yeah, the number one source of downtime in our environment is security. And we've come a long ways from that, but sure. um, I've seen uh, a lot of companies jumping early on the AI bandwagon, which, you know, let's be honest, okay, AI today, whatever it calls AI is machine learning taken it to is. the next level. Um, you know, it's, it's never going to pass that Turing test with the current technology. But um, no, it's, and that's where I thought it was interesting is that you guys have, um, because if I just call my ISP and tell them, you know, I'm, I'm having a problem, it can take 24 hours for them to just look at my connection, you know, but you guys are getting a response um, uh, right away to make mission critical decisions that can impact one of their customers. You're asking them to do things that are going to impact their customers. So 
How much, uh, I mean, in case everybody's not uh, listening, is not aware, you guys are from Infoblox. You got almost 25 years in the DNS, DHCP, and IPAM background. So you've been working with ISPs for that long. Right. How much does that relationship go to that 24-hour response time that you're getting? Because I, I, that shocked me to hear that, that low of a number. Uh, Chris can speak to it in depth, but I'll just tell you at a high <laughs> level, and I'll boil it down to a single sentence. The reason we get such enormously awesome response times is because we don't submit false positives. We do not send service providers on wild goose chases. We do not ask that they take down something that is not already proven to be malicious. Our validation phase is thorough. By the time we submit a ticket and speak to a service provider and request to take down every bit of proof required, to bolster our thesis is right there in plain English. Uh, your comment about Chris reminded me of the little boy who went to his dad and asked the question and the dad said, why didn't you ask your mother? And he says, I didn't want to know that much about it. So <laughs> Chris, Chris is the one who can really go into the details here. Indeed. Um, so let's, uh, let's actually throw a question to, uh, to Chris here. Um, I wanted to, uh, to ask you on, uh, you know, so how successful is your mitigation team on 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 these removals? I mean, are, have you ever run into one that you can't get rid of, or or I mean, what's your success rate? And and uh, no, so yeah, let's name, just go with that. What's your success rate? How 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 well does this work? Yeah, so 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 the name of the game is 100% success rate. Um, false positives are pretty much your primary disruptor to that effort. Um, now. When we're talking about threats, my team has a 100% removal rate. Um, in fact, I would be highly suspect of any team out there who is doing mitigations and didn't have a 100% success rate. That would instantly tell me that some of the things they tried to get down, they couldn't. And generally, the reason you can't get something down is because it is not actually a threat. Right? You've painted it as something it's not. You've put in the effort to... Um, associate it with with a crime or some other uh, uh, some ac nefarious activity, um, but the uh, ISP is kicked back and they stand resolute in their process. There was no escalation for you to take, so you quit pursuing it. All right. Well, I know we're down to about our last ten minutes here, and um, I wanted to make sure we got into some contrast here. We've talked about because. Part of the reason I wanted you on here is that you guys have a fairly complete approach to this. Um, there's actually a few other companies that I've seen, a uh, recent Black Hat conference. Uh, there was a couple companies there that this is all they do is uh, monitoring and takedown services. Many of them, it's just the takedown. They don't even do monitoring. Um, so like a lot of emerging markets, there's you know different ways to approach it. And yet most organizations are still kind of doing it on their own. So how popular, I don't, I don't know which of you wants to take this, how popular is a homegrown approach and what kind of obstacles do they run into trying to just do it themselves? I'll go, I'll answer first. Uh, the homegrown approach is relatively common, but it's been my experience and observation that the people who do this internally with an organization, it is not their primary job. It is a subset of what they do in their leftover time, whether they're working in brand protection or marketing or whatever, they are asked to reach out and adhere to protocols and processes with service providers that they're not familiar with. 
They're asked to interact with agencies like CERT or ICANN who they've never spoken to before. Um, this is something that they do in addition to their eight to five job. So in other instances where organizations are big enough to have dedicated fraud protection and brand protection organizations, it becomes costly. I mean, it, it takes a lot of people to do this if you don't have the proper tools and don't have the proper relationships already built. So you wind up in its first instance, you don't get response times because the people doing this for their company, it's not their primary job. And in the other instance, it's extremely expensive because they don't get the ROI throughout the course of the year because they have so many people acting on this. Yeah, and, and another issue for them is that uh, the volume of what they're, uh, of the mitigations that they're doing. So if they're performing mitigation solely for themselves, they don't get quite the depth of interaction with uh, ISPs around the world. So uh, the relationships don't develop quite as easily for them because, you know, uh, we only had two fish at, at, at this provider. Um, you know, are they going to prioritize a relationship with that provider? Whereas uh, service takedown providers who do this for many, many companies, right, will encounter uh, several thousand fish per month at that provider. And so it makes more sense for us to put in the effort there to lay the groundwork for a better relationship uh, because it's more beneficial for us. Well, and I, uh, again, going back to the automation point that Gary raised earlier, I assume to develop those automated tools and processes um, you know, it's much more economical to do that when that's what your organization does versus, um, you know, a, a, a business that, you know, this is just something they do part time. Again, to Gary's point, they uh, they got to do it all manual um, or uh, again, they're going to have to outsource some of it. Um, now, if they did outsource, I mean, ISPs, do ISPs provide any of this or is it just we do it for ourselves at this ISP? I mean, um where where else can they go? Well, if they aren't looking into uh, doing it themselves, and they would have to contract with in with a service provider, like it. Now on the and the monitoring and the discovering piece too. Um, I know that there's a lot of products out there that will find things. Um, you mentioned phishing. I also know lookalike domains. You know ones that are. And, and I'm not talking about the the regular ones, the the fake PayPal's and stuff. Those have been around for decades. But you know, Bob's Software Hut. You know, and and I apologize if there's actually a company out there called that. I'm just using my own name. Um, but you know, if I had my own own domain and somebody decided to attack me because I actually provide services to a company that they really want to get at, I'm too small. But they could be setting up fake you know domains uh, that look like mine. Um, or something. Um, so that kind of being able to monitor for that kind of thing, I cannot imagine any big organization trying to look for lookalike domains for every one of their vendor partners. I mean, but there are tools to do that. They don't have to always outsource that to a service, right? There are tools that can do that, yes. I mean, I've seen, again, I saw some that were offered by, I think there's only one actually of the takedown services I saw at Black Hat that were offering that. Um, I know you guys don't because you're from Infoblox and you guys actually have a, a, a DNS service that does that anyhow. Correct. Um, the, the proactive monitoring and discovery and proactively finding lookalike domains, that's sort of, that's actually built into the product suite at Infoblox. So there's really no need for us to do it within professional services. Ours is 
every effort that takes place after the identification of the lookalike domain. Well, and before we have to sign off here, we're down to the last couple of minutes here. Um, I'm going to ask the money question, which is about the money, <laughs> which is uh, how do they price these things? I mean, most security tools, it's, you know, like six bucks per user at the company and they can run hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, I'm not asking you for pricing, um, but what kind of pricing models are these? Flat fees? Are they per takedown? How do companies price these kinds of services? We price it as a, on a per takedown model. You just purchase, an organization will just purchase a block of takedowns and you have a 12 month span to use them. Um, you know, and you can renew at the end of 12 months at the any, any point during the course of that 12 month term, you start to have a burn down that exceeds your term, then you can come in and purchase more at any given time. Uh, it's not necessarily a subscription, it's just on a per incident basis. All right. So it's like going to IHOP and getting 100 pancakes. Um, if you eat them all, you can always order more. If you don't, well, they're going to go bad. So. Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, so uh, we talked about the speed, accuracy, and effort uh, being absolutely key here. Um, before we wrap up, any uh, final notes on what people should keep in mind if they're looking at this kind of service? Uh, let's start with uh, Chris. Any uh you know, hey, here's some tips and tricks on if you're looking at a service that you want to make sure it does. Um, well, I think one of the grandest things, you know, we've discussed in this podcast, uh, the idea of look-like domains and gathering those up. Now, those can be presented, uh, but I think a key thing there is, uh, you know, making sure that anything you find, it, for it to be nefarious, generally has to have some form of content on it. Um, now there are ways to just register a domain and use it in an attack without having content resolve on, on the domain. Um, but there will be evidence of those, uh, types of attacks, uh, emails and things of that nature that will uh, be able to be referenced. Um, you know, it, it, a common mistake is for people to see domains, which are registered similarly to theirs. Um, and then once they visit domains, they can see ad traffic. Uh, now this is something that, uh, people do to kind of park domains that are similar to really popular companies um, because, you know, people make mistakes. They type the wrong thing in their address bar. Um, they they uh, accidentally save a, a link incorrectly or a favorite. Um, and when they do something like that, they might visit one of these domains that are similar, but not exactly the same where they need to go. Uh, when they do that, they accidentally splash onto an ad page and they're, ge they're actually generating revenue for whoever proactively uh, registered that lookalike. Um, it's, it's, it's an annoying thing, but it's not nefarious in, 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 in you know, it's not outright nefarious. So um, this is typically something that, you know, you could make the mistake. Hey, I think this is bad, but it's really not. All right. That's a good way to, to make this actually more proactive, even though the actual takedown services are reactive. Gary, any uh, final tips from you? Yeah, I'd just like to say that, you know, we've mentioned this before, but relationship building is often overlooked as a critical tool in the toolbox. I mean, most people are hyper focused on the technical aspects and the tools that we bring to bear. While that is one component, I mean, there are tens of thousands of hosting and other service providers each with their own communications and escalation protocols. Knowing the people that run these institutions and building relationships based upon common goals is paramount to the success of anybody who's in the domain takedown business. 
the hosting provider is just one cog in the flywheel of the takedown process. You should, you should consider what experience and what leverage can that company bring to bear with regulatory bodies and law enforcement agencies? What contacts do they have? What is their response time when escalations begin? The takedown program isn't simply confined to the person who submits the ticket and the hosting company that reacts to it. Knowing who, when, and where to escalate an issue within ICANN or other regulatory bodies is critical. Over the last many, many, many years, Infoblox has established solid professional relationships with all of these registrars, national and industry-specific emergency response teams like CERT, international cyber police like Interpol, FBI Cyber, Europol, other relevant organizations. You know, again, I just want to stress that technology is key. The tools you bring to bear are key. Um, your people and their expertise are key, but you have to build relationships with the service providers, regulatory bodies, and law enforcement agencies. It's critical. If you want the kind of response times that we achieve, then you cannot overlook that aspect of the service. Oh yeah, no ISP is going to shut down somebody's site just on anyone's word. They they need to feel confident in it before they take action. So yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. And unfortunately, uh, we've run out of time and I'm kind of looking at all the bullets of uh, things that I wanted to talk about. I think I barely got through half my list. So <laughs> we're probably going to have to schedule time to come back and uh, go into some more details. I wanted to walk through a, a, a whole process from front to end um, using some use case examples of, from your guys' history. Um, but, uh, you know, this is not something a lot of people talk about. So it's been really interesting. And um, we'll look for uh, our listeners for any comments or feedback from them and uh, prioritize getting you guys back on. So Chris, Gary, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Bob. I'd be happy to participate in part two. <laughs> all right. And thank you to all our viewers and listeners for your time. Be sure you are subscribed, uh, like and share the podcast with colleagues and join us next time as we continue our efforts to help you stay on top of cybersecurity and ahead of cyber risks on Threat Talk.